Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the National Library of Australia as we celebrate the publication of This Is What a Feminist Looks Like, The Rise and Rise of Australian Feminism by Emily Maguire. My name is Zoe Cayley, and I'm the manager of sales and promotion here at the library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past, present and emerging, and thank them for caring for this land we are now privileged to call our home. I would also like to extend my respect to any First Nations people with us today. It is a great pleasure to welcome you all this evening to our In Conversation with author Emily Maguire and founder of Feminazi journal, Zoya Patel. The focus of our book publishing program here at the library is to share the vast and rich knowledge that the library's collection holds. We approached Emily with the rather large project of pulling together Australia's feminist history, and she has delivered in spades. Clementine Ford sums it up perfectly when she says, Emily Maguire was one of my first feminist inspirations, and she confirms why with this remarkable insight into the history of Australian women's fight for liberation. In this passionate and timely account, Emily charts a course through the history of Australian feminism from the first wave to the fourth, from suffragists to riot girls, from equal pay to hashtag me too. Along the way, she pays tribute to those who've spoken up and taken action in the face of ridicule, dismissal and violence. It shows us how we got where we are today and reminds us that some battles must be fought over and over again. Emily's latest novel, An Isolated Incident, was shortlisted for the Stella Prize, the Australian Book Industry Awards, Literary Fiction Book of the Year, and the prestigious Miles Franklin Literary Award. Emily works as a teacher and a mentor to young and emerging writers, and is currently the writer in residence at Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. Zoya Patel is an award-winning author uh, writer, editor, and communications professional, based here in Canberra. Her debut book, No Country Women, Woman, sorry, is a collection of memoir essays on race, religion, feminism, and identity. Zoya was named ACT Young Woman of the Year in 2015 for her commitment to raising the profile of women's voices in the media. Please join me in welcoming Emily and Zoya. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming out today and um, chatting to us. I'm really looking forward to getting into the conversation. Uh, but before I do, I would also like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on, pay my respect to their elders, past, present and future. And I think it's important, given we're talking about feminism today, um, that we point out and note that Aboriginal women have been the custodians of culture and of stories uh, on this land for thousands of years before white settlement. Um, and also, unfortunately, First Nations women often suffer the effects of gender inequality at a far um, higher rate than other women. So just a few notes to kind of frame the conversation. Emily, I'm so thrilled to be sharing a stage with you. I've actually read all of your books, uh, except for one, which I realised today, which is Princesses and Porn Stars, so that's obviously going to the top of the list. Um, but this is quite a departure for you uh, from the novels, and I think a lot of people would know you for your novels best. How did you come to writing this book? Yeah, um, 
It, it didn't feel like a departure when I started to dig into it and write it. I'm not a writer who has ever thought of um, myself as having a particular trajectory or career plan or brand. I kind of just go where the interest takes me. So um, five novels, I've had two non-fiction books that are about young women and feminism about 10 years ago. Um, and in between I had continued to write about feminism in shorter pieces and also speak about it a lot with, um, with young women and sometimes young men in schools and universities. I was actually approached by the fantastic team here at the National Library of Australia publishing um, to consider um, writing this kind of history of the Australian feminist movement to draw on the incredible archives that they have here. There's so many wonderful documents and letters and collections. Um, and straight away I was so excited by the idea because I realised that although I had all these conversations about feminism and felt I was very across where we are and what we need to do, mm. I didn't really have any idea about how we got here. Mm. Just really broad strokes. I realised a lot of the feminist history I knew was American and British. Mm. These are a lot of the stories we come. So the opportunity to sort of really delve into the archives and the history and read up on it was just too good to turn down. Yeah, well, as you spoke, I was like, actually, yes, of course, you do write about feminism all the time, yeah. just not necessarily in this particular format. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I've just learned that you're actually a historian by I'm, qualification. I'm absolutely not a historian. I would not claim that <laughs> title. I have drawn on the work of many wonderful historians, and it was really important to me to make sure all those references are in the back of the book, mm -hmm. because I do hope this is a fairly introductory history to some of these um, really great works. Like, each sort of paragraph in my book, there's... Um, whole tomes on them that I, I really hope readers will be interested enough to go and look up and read on them. Um, I, I did actually do a history degree though, I didn't <laughs> do um, postgraduate work and actually become a historian but I'm a very passionate amateur historian and it was um, just so wonderful to find, you know, I, I think I sort of phrase it in the book that a lot of these, uh, particularly women that I talk about and stories from Australian feminist history, um, it's not like, not like no one's told these stories. They're not forgotten entirely. There mm. are other feminist nerds, and, which I mean with a lot of affection, and historians who have really done this research and, and written about them. Um, it, it's just that they haven't got into the popular consciousness in the same way mm. and that there's these incredible heroes of our past who, who've really fought this fort and had amazing breakthroughs and yet nobody's heard of them and we all know Don Bradman and Farlap and all these other names that are household names for Australian kids growing up and not these feminist heroes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I feel like part of what is so interesting about the book and really draws you in is the fact that it is very Australian. It actually looks at, you know, Australian feminist history in a way that, as you said, I certainly hadn't come across myself and I've got a degree in gender studies. Mm -hmm. Were there any figures that you kind of came across but you didn't know about beforehand in our feminist history that particularly struck a chord with you? There were heaps. There were so <laughs> many. It's really hard to start um, knowing when to start. I guess the, the person who has almost been haunting me in a, in a positive and a negative way for years now um, is Louisa Lawson. Mm -hmm. uh, because I um, grew up in a family that was very, very bookish, um, but quite poor. And we only had sort of three or four books and the rest were always library books that we'd come back and forward with. And, but one of those books was my dad's, which was um, Henry Lawson Poetry. And he didn't actually need the book because he could recite the poems. Mm. He'd sort of grown up the son of a shearer and 
and knew all those bush poets and those bush bards and to actually discover that Henry Lawson's mother was this incredible writer, editor, journalist, suffragist, feminist. Mm. Um, her life is just was a really hard one in a lot of ways. She was an extraordinary woman. She was a unionist. She was a real working class fighter. And she started the first um, female targeted and also female run entirely operated uh, newspaper in Australia called The Dawn in I think 1888. Um, in New South Wales, and it was just an absolutely revolutionary publication. Mm. There were some household tips and kind of familiar women's magazine stuff mm. in there, but also articles about, um, well, what we would now call feminist issues. Mm. So violence in the home, she was a huge campaigner to you know, get support for women who are suffering what we now call domestic violence or family violence. Um, she wrote about women's financial independence, all of these kind of issues. She had an entirely female printing staff. Mm. Um, they couldn't be members of the union because women weren't allowed to join the union. Mm. So the union boycotted the paper for having non-union staff. Um, and they actually really seriously boycotted it and sabotaged, in fact. They, uh, a few union blokes rented an office across the road from the Dawn office so that they could use mirrors and angle them up at the windows to blind the women as they were working in there so they couldn't actually get their work done. I mean, they went very far to get in their way and, um, yeah, at one stage Louisa Lawson actually went down there with a watering can and chucked water on them and she just kept the printers rolling. She started the Dawn Club, which was like a very early, I guess, um, you know, in the 70s, we called it consciousness raising mm. sessions where women would come and actually talk about their lives and share their stories. And, you know, she was just an absolutely extraordinary figure. Um, and I had never heard of her. Yeah, well, you definitely get to get a bit of an insight through your book. I also feel like that story of the union workers is kind of the nonsensical actions of the patriarchy that could almost rival some of what's happening now. So. Yeah. Uh, life does continue in strange ways, doesn't it? Um, mm -hmm. So I feel like one of the key things about feminist history is this concept of phases, so you know the waves of feminism. Could you give us maybe like a really short summary of what those waves are? I think most people understand first and second wave, um, but it gets a little bit more complicated when we get to third and then eventually fourth wave feminism. Um, I feel like you define it in a really clear way, though. I hope I can remember how I, yeah. <laughs> how I put it, that was really clear. Um, so I, I think, it, look, I'm actually really sympathetic to the argument that we should get rid of the waves mm -hmm. um, because the periods have never been that clearly defined and it, looking just at the waves model, it ignores a lot of the work that went on between those so-called waves. Actually, feminist struggles and feminist battles have, have never stopped, mm. um, but it is in some ways useful to talk about these sort of big groupings, I guess, of, of thinking and ideology. So, so the first wave in, in Australia post-colonisation was really all focused on getting the vote, mm -hmm. the suffragists. Um, those women came from, a lot of them from the temperance movement, from mm -hmm. the Christian temperance movement. They were really, this, as Anne Summers would say, the God's police mm. model of femininity and wanting to actually make a difference in society, particularly stopping alcohol, um, or what they saw as the abuse of children and young women, 
and all of their lobbying and working for that just really had a limit because they couldn't vote and they had to kind of depend on the kindness of men to vote mm. for things that were good for them. So mm. the vote became a means to these other ends that they wanted to achieve. Um, the second wave, or what's often called the second wave in the 70s, I mean, there was a reason it was called Women's Liberation. Mm. It was about liberating women from the constraints of patriarchy and um, the roles that were mm. expected and, and put on that. There were one of the, to me, closest to my heart um, for various reasons, part of that 70s struggle um, was to do with domestic violence, mm. which again, Anne Summers has pointed out, they didn't have a term for when they first started working against it. Um, but that was, and, and unfortunately it remains, uh, such an enormous problem in an Australian society. And, you know, this idea that if a woman can't be safe in her own home mm -hmm. and have that safety for herself and her children, all the other changes and breakthroughs become, mm -hmm. um, you know, not quite meaningless, but, but it's really <laughs> difficult to to care about anything else when you don't have that personal safety of your body and in your home. So women's liberation was an incredibly important movement in the 70s. Third wave is where we do start to get mm. more confusing. Um, so broadly speaking, I talk about it as 90s feminism, but there, you know, even though feminism has always been really diverse mm. in terms of the thoughts and the um, ideologies, I guess, and ideas about how change should happen. In the 90s, you did kind of get these different strands mm. that were all united in, in certain ways, which made them more feminist, but you sort of had the Naomi Wolf um, power feminism, which was kind of saying, look, the last generation of feminists did achieve all this stuff, and what's... I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit, but kind of saying, we just need to step out and take it now, take mm. the power. There's actually not that much more to do. It's just that women aren't actually standing up and, and taking the mm. power for ourselves. Um, you had riot girl kind of feminism, which was very much, you know, the girl in the title is a big yeah. clue there that it was, it's girl, but it's girl. And so it's a very youth-oriented and led movement. And that was in a lot of ways about really... Um, claiming individuality and the kind of power that comes from just being yourself. Um, and then there was the more academic mm -hmm. feminist strand, which I think has been enormously influential in a lot of ways um, to feminism now, which we, you know, we can call the fourth wave if mm -hmm. we want to, or just say now. Um, but particularly the concept of intersectionality mm -hmm. that, that um, started to actually be defined by academics. I think um, Kimberly Crenshaw, the African-American uh, legal scholar, an academic was the first person to kind of really lay that idea out and mm. it had some uptake at the time, but, but certainly I think you'd agree now it's sort of come central to mm. the feminist conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And in fact, on intersectionality, I did want to ask you, it must be difficult to write a kind of intersectional account of feminist history in Australia when, you know, a lot of what's been recorded and what's been kept has been really centred around white women um, mm. and the women who had the means and had the kind of um, access to be able to have their stories recorded, take up more of those leadership positions within the movement. How did you kind of approach that? And was that difficult for you at all to try and dig, I guess, a little bit deeper than what might just come up uh, to the surface when you start looking at our feminist history? 
Yeah, I think one of the things for anyone working um, within history and, and looking at published accounts is, first of all, exactly what you say. If, you, if you're only going off the things that are already published, that has already been influenced by all these historical forces, including racism or you know other kind of structural issues, that the stories that are getting through, if we just keep repeating those stories, <laughs> then nothing ever changes. Mm. But of course, there's um, difficulty in where else are we going to find these stories. Mm. Um, and there's certainly stories of um, Indigenous women's activism that, that aren't mine to tell. In mm. particular, you know, there's a, there's a strong, strong, strong history of Aboriginal women's activism in this country um, that is being told and, and being told very well. Something that it was really important to me to note in this book was where the gains for feminism important, huge gains that I, I do and think we should celebrate have at times been unequal or uneven in their mm. effects um, with different women and sometimes even damaging. So, you know, when I first started working on this book, I thought, well, let's look at the big moments, like mm. getting the vote. And then, of course, you look at that and it wasn't one big moment. It was a lot of work over a long time and in different states and then the federal vote and then realising that the, vo the vote that... I had sort of thought, well, okay, all women have the vote now in 1902. Um, actually, the same piece of legislation that gave women <laughs> the vote actually only gave white women the vote mm. in 1902. And that piece of legislation explicitly excluded uh, women and men who were from Aboriginal, Pacific Islander, Asian and African descent. And it's that same piece of legislation that... that we celebrate. Mm. Um, other gains, contraception was a similar thing. I mean, I certainly <sighs> applaud weekly <laughs> breakthroughs in accessible contraception. It's mm. um, been absolutely world transforming for women to be able to control their fertility more easily. Um, but there are also accounts, and many of these are anecdotal, and you do have to dig a bit deeper because it wasn't recorded, but there's very, very credible accounts of the same contraceptive technologies being used to forcibly mm. um, uh, contracept, but also, in, in extreme cases, sterilise mm. uh, Aboriginal women, migrant women, disabled women. Mm -hmm. So it's not about not celebrating those wins, but it's about recognising that they weren't evenly distributed in terms of the benefits. Mm. And I think going forward, like this is the really, really important thing to, to learn from the history, mm. um, to actually not for anyone, whatever your position in life is, as an activist or as someone wanting to be part of the movement, to assume that if something isn't hurting you or affecting you, then it's not a women's issue. Mm. To assume that if something is benefiting you, then it is going to be of equal benefit to all women. Mm. And to actually have that awareness and, and ask those questions before that kind of damage is done. Mm. So it would be really great if we could get to a point where feminist gains could be celebrated by all women whenever they happened. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you put that so well. And one of the strengths of the book is definitely the nuance that you bring to, I think, what can often be a a discussion that is framed in really binary ways um, when we know that actually intersectionality means that there is no such thing as a binary. Things become a lot more murky, which makes it a lot harder to write a, a history of Australian feminism at all, I guess. Yeah. Um, some things do feel a bit more clear-cut, though, including mm -hmm. um, the political leadership of women. Mm -hmm. and I think we're in a kind of weird state right now where if we look at Western democracies, at least, we have more white men with silly blonde haircuts in power than we do women. 
So why do you think it's just not happening? And you look at the treatment of mm. women who have achieved, um, you know, some level of political success. Um, if we look at Hillary Clinton, Theresa May, you know, whatever you think of their individual politics, we can probably agree that the things that they aren't allowed to get away with and the things that they are criticised for, I mean, Julia Gillard definitely fits mm. under this category too, are really different from the way that their male peers are treated, who at this point in time have done a lot worse in terms of both, uh, I guess, um, a lack of decorum, but also, you know, significant bad things and don't seem to be held to the same standard. Did you, in your investigating, did you happen to find um, a nugget of wisdom on this that I think we're all looking for because it certainly boggles my mind? Oh, no, I mean, the only clear-cut answer is the patriarchy, which yeah. is my answer to nearly everything that goes and privilege. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, look, no, it, it's, it's very confounding and upsetting. I mean, one of the kind of statistics or numbers that just shocked me when I saw it in black and white and I had to check and double-check is that in all of Australia's history up to today, we have had 12 female heads of government. Mm. That's all the states, all the territories, federal. Mm. 12 in total, ever. Um, it's just absolutely astounding to me. Mm. Our um, representation has, uh, in all our parliaments overall, has never really got past around 30%. That's about the, the peak, which is nowhere near representative of the population. We are, in Australia, we're... Um, 50th in the world for female mm. representation now and this is a country that was one of the first to allow women or white women anyway to actually stand for parliament mm. so we have really slipped a long way backwards but you're right that it's not really that different most places in the world either so this is a is a much bigger problem and a remaining gender divide look there are certain things we can point to um, many women in politics have talked about the difficulty of having a family mm -hmm. when they're in politics. Um, I think Annabelle Crabb is, is talking about that with her new work now too in terms of um, all these men have families, mm. or most of them do, and it doesn't seem to create the same issue and it's because we do still, as a society, and, and therefore most individuals, um, the burden falls on women mm. to do most of the child rearing. And if you have a family, it does at some point. I think, you know, when Kate Ellis resigned, she sort of said, actually, it wasn't too hard. Well, it was hard, but she could handle it when the baby mm. was a baby. But once you've got to have a school-aged kid and yeah. live near the school and, and different demands of family and and yet our, our Prime Minister and I think our Treasurer and several other mm. really, really senior men in our government have school-aged children. Mm -hmm. They seem able to do their jobs because they have a, a wife to do but that But also, for them. if you don't have children, like Julia Gillard, yes. then that, of course, casts... Deliberately whole, barren. ...whole level... The fruit bowl. I mean, can we ever forget bowl. the empty fruit bowl? Yeah. And suddenly that casts an aspersion on her ability to make sound decisions for the, for the To country. understand families, all of that stuff comes mm -hmm. in. And what was really interesting in some of the historical stuff is... Um, so Enid Lyons, who was... So it took us 41 years to get from when women could run for office mm -hmm. to when we actually had women in the federal parliament, which is a not a win we want to have as the record in the world, I think. Um, but when we finally had women in federal parliament, the two came in at once, Dorothy Tagney in the Senate and Enid Lyons in the House of Representatives. She was the widow of former Prime, of Prime Minister Joseph Lyons. She had 12 children. Um, she had lived a long time in the political climate and probably knew better than anyone mm. um, what a job she had in front of her being one of the very first women to do this. 
And she, she spoke openly about that after the time and said, um, I'll, I'll probably slightly misquote her, but basically said to, to have been even slightly unfeminine would have been fatal. Mm. And so in those times, she really lent in to the gender stereotypes. You know, she, in her maiden speech, she talked about, you know, a lot of maternal terms and mm. housekeeping type of terms and just really, really kind of lent into that um, to, to give her a legitimacy... You know, and this was a good 50 years since the suffragists were sort of talking about women should be allowed to have the vote because we'll civilise the parliament mm. and have higher morals and be motherly and, and things just had not changed to that degree um, mm. to, to allow women to, to not take on that role. And if you actually look at the women who have managed to get to, you know, cabinet roles, for example... Um, most of the ministries have been what are considered kind of softer, more mm. nurturing or feminine ones. So, you know, community services and education and healthcare, which we all know are incredibly vital, like keep us running and society moving, mm. but, but they are seen as sort of softer and more feminine ones. And I, I just don't think we've come nearly far enough as most of us would like or, mm. or think in terms of how people see a, a woman's role in the house. Mm. I mean, you know, Julia Gillard did also try with that Women's Weekly... Mm -hmm. um, spread. I don't know if anyone remembers that with the knitting, mm -hmm. and you know, I, she genuinely enjoys knitting according yep. to all accounts. But even that couldn't really save her damaged reputation after the fruit bowl. So uh, there's definitely no. a lesson there. Um, and well, I think the lesson is you can't win. Yeah, and unfortunately, <laughs> the lesson is uh, there's nothing we can do about it until the patriarchy changes. Um, and I guess that leads on to one of the other kind of core issues when we think about um, you know the modern Australian woman. If we're talking about mostly middle-class um, educated women in mm. white-collar roles, mm. which is the gender pay gap. Um, mm. So, of course, that's been kind of um, doing a bit of a widening and then closing and then widening game for a few years now. Mm. And we're still at a point where I think I read recently that on average, according to this year's pay gap, women take home about $15,000 less than men in the same occupations mm. annually. Um, why do you think the gender pay gap still exists? And do you think that when we talk about women accessing work, one of the things that I've often thought about, um, you know, being somebody who's very interested in feminism generally, is the way that when women started accessing economic participation in, and the workforce, we just kind of shoehorned women into a system that had been created for men. Do you think that's part of the issue? It's absolutely part of the issue um, because of, of the reality that most people will have children mm. and raise families. Um, and But we still talk about that as a women's issue mm. and maternity leave and all those mm. kind of arrangements seem to be something that a lot of people still talk about as if they're the, for the convenience mm. of women, as if our whole society wouldn't stop and break down mm. if people stopped having children, mm. if women stopped having children and someone has to raise them. And yet it is often talked about as a women's issue mm. and as if women are somehow slacking off in the workplace or something, yeah. if they've got to leave to pick up kids or take maternity leave. That is not going to change till more men step up mm -hmm. and and take that leave and demand it in their workplaces. I mean, again, it's something I heard Annabelle Crabb talking about the other day, the way that, the, you know, even in, in companies and workplaces where men can receive the same benefits, um, they often don't because the mm. social kind of pressure to not do that is so huge. And that, 
that is a change that just has to happen or women mm. won't advance any further. Yeah, it's interesting though because it seems quite cyclical because on one hand you have this gender pay gap which means that men are earning more. Mm-hmm. So if one person is going to continue earning and you're in a heterosexual relationship, it kind of makes sense for the men. I say this as someone mm. who is, you know, I turned 30 this year, my partner and I talk about this regularly and um, you guys are a Canberra audience so you'll understand when I say that, I say to him that we can have a child when he makes EL1 because... Um, otherwise, oh. I don't see how we could afford <laughs> it, which is public service gag. Yeah, yeah. But, but I do think that's when your feminist kind mm-hmm. of principles and the ethos that you um, live your life by and those kinds of um, the goals that we set for ourselves as young women being, I'll never do that. I'll continue to um, accelerate my career. Mm-hmm. My money is just as good as my partner's money and you know we'll be a really equal household. It all starts to crumble when you're faced with the systemic inequality. Um, and I, I don't know why I'm looking to you like you'll have some kind of overarching answer. This isn't just about <laughs> I life do know advice, the solutions. But... I'm just withholding. Just, yeah, <laughs> no, I know. No, and that is exactly the, it, it's exactly the problem, as you put it, that we have these systemic issues. Um, but when it comes down to it, people have to make the best choices for themselves mm-hmm. and their families. And it's easier Mm. to make those choices than to actually try and change a whole system before you have kids totally. and raise your family and pay pay your rent or your mortgage. And, and that's where people, you know, do keep making these same choices because they make sense, because the system is mm. stuffed and our societal expectations mm. are, are twisted and, and it's so slow to change these things. It just is so slow. It, it, it is better in terms of men's role in mm. parenting and family, like generationally the the men my brothers and and husband and the men of our generation have a really different relationship to their kids mm-hmm. and family than our fathers did and they a really different one than their mm. than their fathers um, and so that is changing but in terms of the workplace it's just it's really mm. slow it's too slow mm. um, and, and just the other thing on the gender pay gap too that I've been you know think is really important to talk about um, is the way in which we're talking of averaged figures. Mm. And a big thing that comes into that is the professions, mm. which professions tend to be female-dominated, are all the lower-paid professions. And that's why when we get a national average um, of wages out there, um, it, that's something that really does, looking at the history, really illuminated for me because it really does um, date back to... You know, again, I thought, oh, right about when equal pay got granted, that's not one decision. It's lots of different decisions and it's had to be interpreted and reinterpreted. And one of um, the big gaps has been not valuing female or traditionally female work the same Mm. as traditionally male work. So things like teaching and nursing and childcare Mm. and elder care um, have been historically really massively undervalued. Mm. And because they are professions in which women still dominate, Mm. when we do have an overall balance, whereas the much more highly paid professions and Mm. trades, for example, in construction work and mining and engineering um, are still incredibly male-dominated. Mm. So we do still have a real, real divide in terms of professions. It's actually really interesting because I always say that childcare is one of, you know, the biggest feminist issues in a kind of first-world country like Australia uh, because it hits on so many different aspects of gender inequality. Mm. On one hand, access to affordable childcare is one of the fundamental ways that women can access work if that's what they want to do. But then we also know that um, childcare educators are historically underpaid 
um, and that all the ev evidence shows that the first five years of a child's education are the most important in terms of setting a foundation. So mm -hmm. if there's one feminist action we all take away from today, it's to send a letter to the Minister for Education demanding better pay for childcare workers yes. um, and maybe some better subsidies for, for childcare mm -hmm. as well. Um, just my little plug for childcare. I used to work for a, um, a feminist organisation that ran a lot of childcare, so it's always in my head. Um, but when you were talking about the cultural backlash against men taking on more caring responsibilities, mm. it's kind of ironic because you also talk about another kind of cultural backlash in the book, which is when you are a, a feminist and you do things that some other feminists might consider to be less feminist, mm -hmm. i.e. you talk about getting married mm. um, and the reaction of one of your colleagues mm. at the time who is an older woman um, who seemed kind of nonplussed by it. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, so I got married when I was a baby, is what I say <laughs> now, because that's what it feels like. Um, I, I got married very, very young um, and... I was working in a, a retail job at the time and one of my older colleagues, um, I think she's in her 50s, she was appalled mm. that I was getting married. Um, she loved me, we were really close, she loved my husband-to-be, she didn't know him all that well but she liked him, thought he was a great guy, it was nothing personal. But she just said to me, Emily, like, why would you tie yourself up like this when you don't have to? She said, you know, her generation, they didn't realise they had options, they just... Well, how she was raised, you just got married, it's just what you did. And it had taken her a lot to get out of a relationship that was really bad, and that was true for mm. a lot of women she knew. And she just couldn't understand why I would be choosing something that mm. seemed so oppressive. And I just didn't get it at the time. I was mm. in love and romantic. <laughs> and, and what I realise now is it's exactly the struggles that she was talking about that allowed me to be so glib about it. Yeah. Because I didn't feel I was walking into any kind of trap because it was a choice, because I could easily get divorced, because I could easily control my fertility. I was marrying someone who had been raised by one of those women who was a single mother and he did and does cook and clean much more and better than me. Yeah. And the, the structural stuff had changed so fundamentally that marriage just my marriage was never going to be what hers was, mm. which is not to say there aren't still marriages that do turn out to be traps, again, to return to the issue of family violence. Mm. Um, but it's it's not the same structural issues. I mean, I go into the book about yeah. um, the changes that happened with the Family Law Act and the introduction of the Family Court in the 70s, which is, again, in the news, um, that particular institution. But, but just the fundamental change that mm. happened when we had no-fault divorce introduced, for example, and along with that, the change that we had um, with easily accessible contraception, mm. that those are the kind of feminist wins that, you know, when we talk about taking things for granted. Yeah. Like, it was just, as a 20-year-old, it just I just could not imagine marriage being something that was not just a fun, romantic thing you did because mm. you're really into someone. That's a really good way of framing it, actually, is this kind of, you know, these are the stepping stones that have gradually led to the point at which women um, in our generation are just choosing to get married. Yeah. But also there's a real, um, I think a general kind of wave within young women now to ward some of those more traditional institutions, mm. um, which I do find really interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in a culture where um, marriage was arranged, so I've always had a natural um, distaste for marriage as an institution. Mm. Um, but I do think 
you know, a lot of my friends are getting married now and having really traditional white weddings and taking on their partners' surnames and things like that, mm. which there was a period in the 90s, um, especially um, as a result of kind of second wave feminism, where that would have been seen as just such a faux pas. Mm. Um, and now it's kind of going the other way. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think it's just um, you start forgetting about the history of these institutions the longer that they haven't been, um, I guess, a system of control? Yes, absolutely it's that. And it's also, um, I think there is often an element of generational need to do differently to yes. your parents' generation. I think that happens, we do see these cycles throughout history um, of sort of the conservatism, the rebellion, the conservatism, the rebellion. So there's yeah. that. I, I do worry with things like taking a husband's name and putting all the finances in one account under his name, which I've heard of some young women doing. That really is a, um, a, a an ignorance mm. about w what those restraints mm. can actually mean, yeah. and no one wants to think of someone that they're marrying and in love with that, mm. like you know, it's it's actually is romantic to think, well, yes, he he could <laughs> use this um, as a tool of control, but of course he wouldn't, um, and so that feels like a really romantic thing if you don't have an actual lived experience or memory of yeah. of that kind of control and societal thing and and I think that is the danger in forgetting history or in not learning history mm. that we these decisions don't have context mm. and um, we can get into a situation where we I mean this is what we've seen with the great Trumpian disaster in a lot of ways is this ridiculous idea that America or Australia or marriage or whatever it was, was once great and better mm. and nicer without actually looking at the history and thinking who the hell was it better for? Because it was a very small number of people it was great for back mm. in those days. But when you haven't lived through that and you don't know the history, it can be really easy to romanticise mm. that and look at the outfits on Mad Men or whatever and think, oh, that looks nice. Yeah, it's classic rose-tinted glasses, isn't yeah. it? But I have to say, when I'm watching Mad Men, I'm always imagining myself as John Draper not as his wife. Right, because you don't want to be bored. Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that seems fun. I should totally yeah. go become a marketing executive, <laughs> not thinking of being the housewife. Um, no, it's interesting that you say that because I recently wrote a piece for SBS on why combining finances with my partner actually makes me feel really anxious and uncomfortable mm. because... Um, which he's very tolerant of all this stuff that I put out into the public sphere, by the way. I said to him, by the way, I'm writing a public article about how I don't want to share a bank account with you. <laughs> You're cool with that? And he was like, sure. And I, was like, and I invented a line that you say at the end to make it sound more interesting than what you actually said in that one conversation. Um, <laughs> this is the life of people a, marrying a writer or totally. hooking up with a writer. Yeah, yeah you tough. get it. It's tough. Um, <laughs> but I do think, you know, we have a tendency, like you said, to um, romanticise the past and kind of um, not give credit to the progress that we have made. And even in this discussion so far, I feel like we've really dwelled or I've really forced you to dwell on the really negative parts of the progress that hasn't been made mm. thus far with gender equality. There are some really good things happening though. Yeah. Um, and you know, just recently last week, this is very relevant to us as writers, the Stella Count um, mm. released their count for this year. And for those who don't know, the Stella Prize does account every year of the representation of female authors um, in critical reviews in major publications, um, amongst other things within the count. And this is um, really great progress this year with almost um, you know, parity between mm. female and male authors being reviewed in major um, publications, which is really exciting. Is there anything that's exciting you about progress in gender equality? Well, one, another, that did excite me because mm. I've been following the Stella Count since it started and that's 
depressed me every year and this year it didn't. Yeah. Um, the other thing that just happened, um, which makes, makes one tiny line in the book out of date already and I'm thrilled <laughs> about it, is that abortion was decriminalised in New South Wales, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. could still be challenged, I know that, but at the time of going to press, uh, New South Wales was the last mm. state to still have abortion on the criminal mm. code and I've um, been watching it, watching it and actually hoping for the book to be out of date mm. by the time it was printed mm -hmm. and that did just happen. Um, I mean, it's hard to count that as a win when it's been so ugly and hard fought and took so long. Um, I, I think there's wonderful things happening all the time. I know you spend time talking to young people in schools and, and universities, and I do a lot of that too. The, the level of conversations I have with teenagers about gender and all manner of social justice issues is so much more sophisticated and nuanced and humane and compassionate than I or anyone I knew would have been capable mm. of at their age. Mm. And this is across a wide range of schools, like some very, very privileged ones and um, some, uh, some, you know, more um, socially disadvantaged schools as well. It, the conversation is different. Um, the ideas about gender and the roles that um, they're expected to fulfil. Mm. It just gives me a lot of hope. And I am wary of putting everything on the next generation for hope, as um, Greta Thunberg has reminded us all of, um, that that's just such a cop-out to mm. be an adult and say, well, the next generation will fix it. Um, but it, it, it is definitely a sign that I mean, there's exciting things to look forward mm. to with leadership from younger people. I think it's hard not to feel somewhat hopeful at this generation that is coming up behind us because they are genuinely so much more in tune and aware of um, inequality and disadvantage mm. than even my generation. And I do, I always think to myself, you know, when I started writing for Lit Magazine, which is um, a feminist publication that started here in Canberra, I was 15, mm. and I still remember... Um, saying to people on the on the school playground that I was a feminist and everyone being horrified by this mm. and my friends saying to me oh like why would you hate men and you mm. know I would never be a feminist etc of course they're all feminists now um I did it first but they're all <laughs> feminists now um but I love that because I look at that and that was you know not that long ago and now there's a feminist collective at that at that school mm. um and yeah. it's so lovely to see that kind yeah. of change in that progress so I do think we have something to be optimistic about um yeah. even if that means that sometimes we are on the side of putting all of the pressure um, on these on these young people. I'm curious as to how that transition happened, though. Mm. Part of me wonders if it's the internet, but then the internet is also this kind of cesspit of doom and despair, so I feel like it can't be that. But I'm not really sure how this kind of progress has happened so rapidly within, you know, the space of a decade where mm. we're seeing just a better understanding of... Um, all of those issues that we really did kind of skate over, I feel, even in, in my generation. Yeah, I, I, I think it is largely the internet. Mm. Um, and and sometimes the cesspit nature of it actually contributes. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Um, you know, you can have a negative backlash and you can have a positive one. Mm. And, you know, we know that... Um, women became really activated in the United States politically mm. after Trump's election. You know, they, sometimes people will get a scare up them about mm. how bad things have gone and that can really reactivate um, feminist conversations. But I think the wonderful thing about the feminist internet is how diverse it is, mm -hmm. that there are feminist communities online to sort of um, suit everyone, you mm. know? 
um, and every, n not just in terms of uh, different intersections, but, you know, there's feminist knitting and sewing <laughs> collectives, if that's what you're into, and there's mm. feminist Star Trek forums, and there's sort of, you know, ways to, to bring a feminist analysis to all these different things that can, yeah. can really allow, um, you know, I think certainly when I was growing up, uh, which says as much about, I guess, my own... Um, area I grew up in, all that kind of stuff as much mm. as anything else, but I I thought feminism was something purely historical. Mm. I didn't feel negative towards it. I thought it was great, but I thought it was done. Mm. I didn't have any kind of conversations around me to, to make me feel that it was something that had anything to do with me mm. in the present tense. And if it had, I think I would have been, you know, as someone who was a high school dropout and all that kind of stuff, I would have just felt way too intimidated. Mm. Um, because a lot of when I did start reading about feminism in my local library, it was quite academic, and I love academic feminism now and read it all mm. the time. But at the time, it would it would have just it did just seem um, very far away from me. And I think this accessibility and all these different feminist communities and ways of talking about these issues, you know, that that is such a big part of um, just ordinary kids and young people everywhere finding yeah. a way to engage with the issues they care about. Mm. Yeah, it's actually really. Yeah, the progress has been um, constant and consistent in a way that definitely feels like it isn't ebbing and that um, it'll continue to flow on. Um, and I think the awareness of intersectionality is a big part of that. Mm. Um, and, you know, instead of the way that I think young women, when I was growing up, um, young women tended to look at their own lives and say, well, I've never experienced any inequality, yeah. so therefore this can't possibly be relevant. Yeah. Um, people are now saying, well, people over there are still experiencing yes. inequality, so maybe we should be worried about that. Yes, and making um, those connections. And, and just the other thing I wanted to say on that too is um, I think the nature of the internet as well means that there's not the um, dependency on leaders. Mm. There are still great feminist leaders in terms mm. of activism and, and sort of being at the forefront of various struggles, but everyone has a voice. Mm. And of course, certain forums uh, do prioritise different voices mm. over others and there can still be problems with that. Um, but there's definitely now it's much, much easier for people who, for whatever reason, may have been shut out of that conversation mm. to have an equal voice and have their own experiences be heard. And I think that's been a really powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting, though, when you say that because... I think one of the most common criticisms of feminism as a movement is that it's so fractured and, mm. you know, there's so much infighting and no one really decides, um, no one really agrees on what the definition of feminism is. And I was interested in, you know, what you have been researching and looking at in terms of the history of feminism. Do you think that we have become um, more individualised as, as the movement has kind of continued? And do you think that there's a need for a more collective approach to some of these issues? Or is that already happening and it just doesn't look like that sometimes? Yeah. Um, one of the really important things I realised was that there's always been division within mm. feminism. And there's always been people who don't necessarily use the word that everyone else is using for what they're doing. Um, you know, you can really dig into some of the women from the 1890s and the arguments that were going on amongst them about mm. what's the best tactics and what's the best approach and what should our priorities be. That's always been an element of it. I, I think it's a great thing. I think a movement is stronger mm -hmm. when um, people are able to actually uh, fight over yeah. the ideas. And it's it's... It's really actually very sexist, often the commentary around it, as if mm. it's it's 
you know, if women are having spirited disagreement about something that it's put down to bitchiness or infighting or something, when really every every movement has had strong thinkers who disagree on important things, mm. even though their um, general goal or values are, are the same thing. Um, I, I think that it is a strength that feminism is so diverse mm. in all of these different ways. Um, nobody can be the authority, the expert, or the key activist mm -hmm. on every issue. There is so much work to be done. Mm -hmm. I think it's really great that there are people who their priority and their form of feminism is focusing on reproductive rights. And then there are others who are focusing on sex workers' rights. And there are others who are focusing on getting more women pre-selected for political office. Mm. None of those people can be or should be trying to lead all of those issues yeah. all at once and all the many, many others. Mm. And I, I, you know, this, it goes back to the, to the idea of labelling things. I think when we talk about recognising that sexism and misogyny are still issues that lead to injustice and inequality and that presents in all these different ways across society so what we actually need are people working against that sexism and misogyny mm. therefore working against that oppression and injustice and we need them us all throughout society and no one has to be the person doing all of that and being across all of that it's another great lesson that I got from looking at the history that there are these great leaders and I wish people knew their names, but also none of these achievements would have happened if it hadn't been for the masses and masses of support that they had. Mm. It has never been a fringe movement, although critics have always said it has been. Yeah. And there have always been great masses of people signing petitions, walking around collecting signatures on petitions, writing letters to the newspaper and to politicians and lobbying and volunteering and holding consciousness raising and education sessions mm -hmm. in their houses, in their workplaces and just doing all of this work and all of this support and voting, talking to their friends, changing hearts and minds. All of that has happened in the thousands, tens of thousands, mm -hmm. millions over the decades. And if we talk about feminism as something that we need some feminist pope who's going to tell yeah. everyone what to do and then everyone else sits there and what just follows the leader it's so much more empowering to think that everyone exactly where they are right now can look at their circle of influence and make a change fighting against sexism and misogyny mm. call it what you want have a leader or don't have a leader but that's actually how change happens that's a very impassioned call to arms and actually a very like a positive way of summarising where we're at at the moment. I feel like I'm getting given a signal about time. It's very subtle walking towards us. Um, are we completely out of time or do we have time for some questions? Definitely time for some questions. Um, can you please join me in thanking Emily and Zoya for that insightful talk? So now we would like to open up the conversation uh, for some questions. We're live streaming this event on our Facebook page and recording it. Um, so if you could wait until the microphone comes to ask your question, anyone? Thank you, that was just fantastic. Um, uh, women uh, have always been on the front line when it comes to issues of survival, whether it was in the French Revolution marching for bread uh, in the 1980s, uh, there was a, a, a women's movement, there were women's movements uh, on uh, fighting for peace 
and those movements were big and they mm. were international, uh, they were global and it was a big issue. Now we see, uh, I don't know if people saw the Four Corners program about the climate kids yesterday, uh, I couldn't help but notice, and this is an issue of survival, it's, it's the biggest mm. issue of survival right now, and I couldn't help but notice that those crowds of climate kids were absolutely swamped with young women. Uh, do you have a comment on that? Oh, um, I mean, I think you said it all, <laughs> that young women and women have always led these movements. And um, it, it, it's incredibly exciting to see, and again, there's this thing of, I don't want to pass over and say, they let the young people do the work, but it is in incredibly exciting. Um, but also recognising that young women have always led these movements, not only young women, but if we're talking about that, and teenage girls. Um, you know, I, I remember being a teenager and being, um, having all this energy for change and activism and nowhere to put it, which just turned me into a brat and a really petty rebel because I didn't know what to do with this, this rage and this feeling. And when I see it so well directed and I remember that energy I had and it is really inspiring. Um, I don't know, Zoe, do you have a... Zoe started a feminist publication yourself when you were really young? No, that's like this common error that okay. goes around. So Tell I us started about writing for a feminist publication when I was 15 and I became editor of that one when I was 20. Came editor I launched Feminazi when I was 24, but there's like this rumour on the internet that I was 15 because I've gotten the dates mixed up. Oh, I meant really young was 24. Oh, thank you, thank you. As I, <laughs> to as start I, a publication. As I inch towards 30 this year, 24 <laughs> does feel really young. Um, <laughs> but I feel like I get extra cred. Um, I do think that I was a better person when I was younger. Yeah. Um, like I read journals from when I was a teenager and I was filled with this real um, everything that I worried about interestingly was not boys there was a lot about Harry Potter but then the rest of it was um, social change and mm -hmm. you know desperately wanting to be able to impact some kind of social change and I was that kid who stood out the front of school with the petition papers and you know I was really big on animal rights and um, and gender equality and I actually feel like part of what um, what changes as you get older and what makes it harder and harder is you're forced into the system more and more because you know when you are young you're existing largely on the fringes of the system that makes everything run you're not forced to have economic responsibilities you don't have accountability to um, your own actions in the same way you have this great buffer um, and the older we get the more that we suddenly have to think about where the food comes from and how we're paying rent and um, how we fit into the fabric of society. You know, are we a leader yet? Are we a manager? Suddenly your goals become so framed by capitalism and it's harder and harder to actually step outside of that. And I, I wonder if the reason why young women are leading this climate movement is because they can see so clearly from not being within the system that the systems aren't working. Um, mm. Whereas when we're in the system, when we're looking at it, it seems um, absolutely impossible to dismantle an economy that's entirely built around coal and oil. It just seems impossible that we could do something about it. Whereas it is inspiring to look at, mm. you know, uh, the Canberra protest. I don't know if people went to the climate strike in Canberra, but young women were absolutely the people on stage, you know, speaking, um, and that was very galvanising. Um, but I was really aware that in all of the climate striking, the most important um, movement was the the kids and the school strike and the young people because the rest of us all went back to our full-time jobs and we mm. like put some photos on social media and that was it. Mm. Like th there has been no further action taken by most of the people that I know who went to the climate strike, but 
the young people are continuing. So that is, again, I don't want to lay all the hope at their feet, but I would happily take some direction mm. from some young people on mm. what we could be doing better. Thanks for the, the conversation. It's um, had me retrace my membership, and I've learned tonight of the second wave. Um, and one of the significant things that I think happened through that time was the reduction, almost to nil, of women's bodies being used to sell beds and lounges and cars. Mm. It's come back. Mm -hmm. Women's bodies are being used to sell everything, and, and that's um, disappointing. But it seemed at the time like the, it was at least connected to a structural change because not every ad maker back then was a woman. Mm. Mm. But I'm also aware of the time for me when a man opened the door and I didn't say, it's okay, you can go in, I can manage the door. I thought, oh, I can't be bothered. <laughs> Have you thoughts about how personal energy and structural change can somehow be supported? Because I think they tie together mm -hmm. and that the cyclical stuff is often around the group losing energy, having fought for years and years and years. And I know that happened for me, and I'm not suggesting that that's general, but do you have thoughts about how mm. we can actually keep an energy in a very public way going to keep hitting against the structural stuff that is so hard to shift? Yeah, it's a really good point because it, it can be, it is exhausting <laughs> to continue fighting. I mean, certainly generational renewal is is a wonderful thing as we've mm. been talking about again and again and, and something that I do say in the book is even though it can be so disheartening to realise that today's feminists are in a lot of ways fighting many of the same issues as previous generations, um, the, the upside of that is that younger feminists can look to the older generations to, to learn how, how they did it and what worked and really learn from that. And older feminists can actually take that energy and the renewal that's coming through from younger people. Um, but I also... I think we... We do need to look at larger social structures, mm -hmm. at capitalism, at classism, at racism, at all these other things that divide us um, within our own movement mm -hmm. and that exhaust us, that the work cycles people have to do, the struggling with childcare, mm -hmm. all of those things, they are exhausting. They do make it really, really hard. And in a way, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's an actual plan of the people in power to make everyone so tired running circles around ourselves to pay our mortgages, but it's a... it's. It's certainly not something that they're bothered by, mm. you know, to, to keep us all quite exhausted and distracted. And, you know, it's something we see with the kind of um, populism commentary, whether we're blaming immigrants or blaming yeah. this group or blaming that group, to actually not look up. You know, if people are worried about someone's getting, you know, $5 extra a week than they're apparently entitled to on their... Um, <laughs> Centrelink payments instead of looking at the people at the top who are paying no tax at all or having yeah. massive benefits and we're, we're all sort of infighting in here and being exhausted by our lives. We, we so don't right. have the energy. 
You're so right. And, you know, I think a good example that goes directly to your point of sexism in advertising is recently in Canberra, we had this controversy because a big property developer, um, Geocon, had put up all this advertising for their apartments that had half-naked women, um, you know, cycling as we do through um, Woden or whatever. Um, and I remember being parked at an intersection on Kuyong Street where there was this huge, um, there used to be big public housing complexes that were raised to the ground and turned into apartments. And mm. there was a little mob of young people protesting against Geocon saying, you know, Geocon's advertising is sexist, etc. And I was sitting there thinking, it's great that you're calling this out, but the actual issue here, if you turn around, is the fact that all of these vulnerable people have been moved out of the housing that before gave them access to all of the um, amenities of the city. And actually, we've just moved them into salt and pepper housing throughout the suburbs, mm -hmm. away from the services, with no proper public transport. And if you really want to attack the issue here, the systemic issues that drive gender inequality and all other forms of inequality are what what has happened to this building, mm. not what's advertising the next building, mm. but what's happened to the one mm. that was there. And I think part of the fatigue for me certainly comes from um, having trans kind of graduated through the levels of feminism from I'm really angry about um, sexism in advertising and I'm really angry about, um, you know, ex-celebrity saying that they're not a feminist all the way through to actually none of that stuff can change until we change the fundamental inequality that underlies the structure of our society, which makes me really boring at parties, and I feel as if <laughs> I feel as if I'm always the person in the corner being like, and the problem with capitalism is, so <laughs> we, we would get on great at a party, we yeah. were in the corner together. No, it's Everyone honestly else so like. it's so nice to hear you say things from that perspective because I do think that um, it's not the easy argument to make. Mm. Yeah. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, maybe mm. up in the centre here, the front. Thank you. Thank you. Your talk's been really inspiring and thought-provoking um, and brought back my memories of the second wave of feminism too. And at that time, one of the things that inspired us and changed a lot of minds were works of literature. Mm. And I wonder if you've got any contemporary works of literature that you can think of that are perhaps doing the same thing for, for your generation and generations that are coming after you. Whenever I get asked about books, I instantly forget every title I want to say. But my answer is definitely yes. Um, and while I try and think, and maybe Zoya has some that come to mind, um, Zoya mentioned the Stella Count before, which is a, a project of the Stella Prize, which is, a um, many of you will know, a, a prize for um, women's writing that was sort of started up partly in reaction to so many major prizes, including the Miles Franklin, having year after year after year, almost no women on the shortlists. Mm. Um, the third, so you have the prize, you have the count. The third arm, I guess, of the Stella project is Stella Schools, which I've been lucky enough to have some involvement in. Um, and part of that project is actually getting more books by Australian women writers on school reading lists because there's very few. It varies from state to state. And also um, recognising how overworked teachers are, mm. actually creating the resources to help teachers introduce those texts so they don't have to do a whole bunch of different work to teach different texts. Um, but that whole project is so inspiring and exciting to me because it does recognise um, what you've said and what's been true to me, um, which is the power of a book or literature. I mean. The Beauty Myth was an incredibly important book to me. Um, I read it when I was at an age where I, I 
probably only understood about half of it and really got those structural issues, but it's something I've gone back to. Um, but then I started to find even older texts that have mattered so much to me, not necessarily new works coming out, mm -hmm. but, but sort of there's this great river of feminist texts or writing by women um, that, that I return to and dig into and that changes. I, recent... Mm -hmm. Recent works. I really struggle with recent works because I'm a bit like you. The books that I love the most and that had the most impact on me are still the books that I read as like a fledgling feminist. So mm. I always go back to Virginia Woolf mm. and, and writers like her who really inspired me. But there are incredible Australian writers who are doing really important work. And I think something that I've been quite inspired by has been this movement in Australian memoir written by women because mm. memoir has typically been treated as this really frivolous um, you know, side genre. And now it's actually being recognised for the political tool that it can be because it's only by sharing stories that we actually understand diverse experiences and, and are able to see the, the kind of real life impact of some of these structural inequalities that we've spoken about. Mm. So um, a few that I've really enjoyed recently, um, I don't know if anyone's read Staying by Jessie Cole. Mm. Um, it's an incredible book, um, so lyrical and such an um, immense insight into the impact of mental health on families, um, mental illness on families. Um, and I always go back to Maxine Beneba-Clark and Alice Pung as two um, women of colour who write incredible work, um, and both of whom have written really insightful memoir about growing up in Australia as both you know, women and also um, immigrants. And there's a whole wealth of, of Australian women writers right now who are doing awesome work. I'm also judging the Stella Prize for this year, oh, yeah, which yeah. means that I have like 180 books to um, yes. <laughs> to look at, which is so why my face went so blank. Yeah. When <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, what's a great book right now? And like, I don't know. I'm not allowed to say until February. Yes. Like, <laughs> but there's a lot. I can assure you there is a lot of great writing coming out yeah. of Australia right now, which yeah. is super exciting. And Zoya's own book of memoir writing, mm -hmm. um, No Country Woman, which is fantastic. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Um, on that note, the bookshop is offering guests a 10% discount tonight on um, This Is we What A Feminist that. Looks Like <laughs> <laughs> and Zoya's um, No Country Woman. Um, they'll also be signing copies afterwards. Um, can we please thank them? Thank you all for coming and we hope to see you at the library again soon. <laughs>